Let me be the first. I know many, if you look around, you, you realize many of our family have already begun traveling for Christmas. I know more of you will be traveling this week, and so in case I don't see you on Sunday, uh, let me be the first to say, or let me say Merry Christmas to you. And I hope you enjoy this Christmas and New Year season, and if you're traveling, that you have just a safe, safe time and a blessed time with family and friends. In these weeks of Advent, for those who have been with us, we've been revisiting uh, a few of the stories that surround the arrival of Jesus, and going back and taking a look at some very familiar stories, and but we've been, been trying to do it in a way that is not only historical, but very personal. Uh, because Advent invites us to watch for Christ's arrival in each of our stories. Uh, as people who are aware of our own limitations, aware of our brokenness, as Andrew referred to, aware that our resources, our agendas, our anxieties really can't accomplish what is needed for us to flourish. And so we wait and we watch for Christ's presence. And even though we're not always sure, in fact, even though we're rarely sure of what his presence may look like, and sometimes we find ourselves surprised by the direction that he leads us, we're invited to be hopeful and peaceful. As we, as we wait and as we watch. Just a quick review as we kind of bring things to a close this morning. Four weeks ago we began uh, our first week by walking through the book of Isaiah. A book that is mysterious to many people. And what we discovered was that Isaiah's words um, are whispers of the greatness of the gospel that we've too often reduced to a personal place in heaven. We, we've taken the gospel, and in some ways we, we've, we've shrunk it and, and individualized it to such a level that we've reduced it to something that is smaller than the, than the scriptures describe it as. And, and as we come to Jesus' birth and his death and his resurrection, um, and the life that he brings to us today, uh, what, what they provide for us is the pathway not only to restore individuals to a right relationship with God. Yes, they do that. They have a pathway into a right relationship with God, but it's also the pathway to restore the earth. Restore the government, and the justice system, the cultural and natural environment uh, to its right relationship with God. And then what we saw was Jesus is not only Savior, he's King, who will establish his reign over the entire earth. And so the gospel is so much more glorious, grand, and, and greater than some have been led to believe. And we, we step back sometimes and, and we wonder if it sounds too good to be true. Now we look at the world around us today and the chaos, the confusion, the all that's there, and, and this promise of shalom and peace and righteousness and justice and goodness at times just sounds too good to be true. And so even as followers of Jesus, we find ourselves standing on the edges of the Advent story. Enjoying the simplicity
simplicity and the beauty of the story, singing these wonderful songs, enjoying the beauty and the simplicity of the story, and yet there's a part of us that we cannot bring ourselves to go all in uh, on the scope of the story, the greatness of the story. So we hold back. Maybe afraid to go. And we settle into a reserved skepticism uh, rather than uh, an unreserved abandoned faith. And then sometimes we, we were prone to drift to these places where we substitute hope in God's kingdom with hope in a variety of earthly kingdoms. Everything from our families, to our financial well-being and financial security, to placing our hope in a particular political party or leader. And we find our emotions rising and falling with, with the earthly kingdoms and all that surround us. And yet, and yet, the greatness and the wonder of, of this, this grand story awakens something in us. It awakens our imagination. It awakens hope. Hope that there is something worth believing in, something worth hoping, that is bigger than our individual stories. Well, that's what we've been doing. We've been looking at how this was lived out in Mary and Joseph's stories. And one of the things that we've seen in both Mary and, and Joseph, and we, we described it maybe as a spiritual principle, is the fact that Christ's arrival in our lives is sometimes and maybe often disruptive. That when Jesus steps into our stories, uh, he, he invites us to embrace mystery and miracle. Invites us into places that are uncomfortable, risky, even dangerous. Uh, these places require a hard, deep call to obedience. Because only rarely are we able to fully understand or explain what God is doing, and our best response is a simple yes. And Christ's arrival in our life then begins to ripple into the lives around us, as we've seen. What began with Mary rippled to Joseph and then rippled to Elizabeth and Zechariah, which we look at this morning. If you have your Bible, let's turn to Luke chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 5. I think you'll see the slides up behind me. Uh, verse 5, in, in the time of King Herod, king of Judah, uh, there was a priest named Zechariah. Who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. And Luke framed Elizabeth and Zechariah's story for us. Uh, this couple enjoyed a family heritage with deep roots in the priesthood. Zechariah, a priest, Elizabeth raised in a, in a priest's family as a descendant of, of, of Aaron. Their lives had been completely enveloped 
by all that the Old Testament priesthood involved and, and, and just, just deeply entrenched. They were spiritually minded people. They had devoted their lives to God. They had been faithful in the ways they walked with God. This was one of those couples that you looked at them and they just were just models and, and examples and mentors. They, they were people whose lives just resonated all the promises that the Old Testament talked about. But they were childless. And Luke says they were very old. Uh, now this is interesting. Because we were not told how old they are. But here's what we know. The Old Testament required a priest to retire by the age of 50. And that sounds attractive to me. <laughs> um, at 50, you were done. And uh, you'd get 25 to 50. Um, after the age of 50, they could serve in an advisory or assistant role. But they were not allowed to do the work of the, pre of the priest in the temple. Uh, unless there were some extenuating circumstances with Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were still serving, so they were not yet 50. Um, and yet, they were described as very old. Um, largely because their age had erased any hopes of having children. And in their day, a moral and spiritual stigma was connected to childlessness. Now the rabbis, I went back and I read some of the rabbinic literature in that era, and the rabbis taught that seven people were eliminated from enjoying God's blessing fully. At the top of the list, I'm quoting now from one, is a Jew who has no wife or a Jew who has a wife and has no child. Imagine that. Imagine the stigma of, of being told and being raised in a tradition that suggested that because you didn't have children, you were outside the scope of God's blessing and favor. And that was the stigma that Zechariah and, and Elizabeth in particular had, had lived with for decades. Verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were, were praying outside. I, I just love the, the cultural context of these stories. The priesthood was divided into 24 divisions, or think 24 groups. Um, each division would serve twice a year uh, for a week each time in the temple. Uh, they traced its origin back to the time of David. And so at this moment, Zechariah was given a, a unique opportunity. He was chosen by Lot, which was the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, if you go back and you take a look at this, uh, burning incense on the altar inside the holy place was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Because of the number of, of, of priests, um, estimated by many historians to be 20,000 at the time that we're reading the story, um, a priest could only be selected once in his lifetime from his privilege. 
And not every priest would be given the opportunity. So this was a, this was Zechariah's sacred moment. He approached the altar, and with a single motion, he, he lifted the censer of incense, and its contents began to spill over the coals. And as the smoke just began to billow, uh, he would offer prayers for the blessing and the peace and the hope for the Jewish people. And then he had this wonderful honor at that moment in time of representing the entire nation in God's presence. It was a unique opportunity, and, and people would gather outside of the temple and pray and, and wait for the priest to emerge with the word of hope and blessing. So this moment was the highlight of Zechariah's life and service as a priest. And at this defining moment, God stepped in, and as he did with Mary and Elizabeth, it disrupted Zechariah's moment. Verse 11. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. You know, sometimes a so much of the way we think about angels has been shaped by often uh, the art coming out of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, and, and the image was always of, of angels that were hovering above. And all of these stories, that's not what we see. All of these stories, they were very close. They were, they were very personal. And, and Zacharias comes in, and, and the angel is, is standing right at the, the altar where he is serving. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled in the grip of fear. But the angel, I'll later identify as Gabriel, who was the angel who appeared in all three stories. Uh, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. I imagine that when Gabriel appeared, Zechariah's face went pale and his, his knees weak. Luke says he was gripped with fear. And immediately, Gabriel spoke to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Elizabeth will have a son. Not only have their prayers been heard, but, but the prayers of the entire nation. Um, Gabriel goes on in verse 14, and he will be a joy and delight to you. You will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. And he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And, and, and the angel hearkens back and refers to, to the, the very language of the Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, a 
uh, who had spoken of someone like Elijah who had come to prepare the way of the Lord and restore the hearts of fathers to their sons. And, and so now Gabriel steps in in a father-mother-son story. And Elizabeth and Zachariah's son would be the one to prepare the people to greet you right on the side. But Zechariah couldn't get past the words. Elizabeth will have a son. Everything else got lost for the moment. And they had prayed their entire life for a child. And as much as he wanted to believe it was true, it was too late. Too improbable. Their time had passed. A lifetime of waiting and disappointment made it, disappointment made it hard to hope, hard to believe. And so Zechariah, much like you and me, he asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? <laughs> um, I'm an old man, and my, my wife is well along in years. When we examine the stories of Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth, and we just stand them side by side, uh, there are some interesting similarities and contrasts. Um, an angel played a prominent role in all three stories. It was Gabriel who appeared to all three. And so God was intervening in a very supernatural and dramatic way. Uh, where we see one of the remarkable differences is the fact that Mary and Joseph were quite young when the angel appeared to them. Mary, likely in her middle to late teens, Joseph maybe in his mid-twenties. Uh, this was a couple that had little experience with God. And yet, they trusted the angel's words at face value. By contrast, Zachariah was an older man. He spent his entire life walking with God. He knew the ways of God. He spent most of his life walking with God, and yet he struggled to believe what the angel had said. And, and we step back from it, and, and we see something that's just this truism, that faith has no necessary connection to our age, our spiritual season of life. You know, I, I reflect on so many stories, and some of the most courageous decisions of faith are made when we're young. Andrew, I was thinking of you this morning. You know, and your story, some of our most courageous decisions of faith are made when we're young. Before the skepticism and the cynicism and the disappointments have settled in and, and we find ourselves moving towards something. Uh, youth often brings an energy and an enthusiasm that is not yet matched by experience and maturity. And to take place just out of passion. But as we age, we gain experience. A good thing. We gain perspective. Another good thing. But along the way, we also gather memories of disappointments. Times we trusted God and it didn't become what we thought it would. We're now in our 50s and our 60s and our 70s, and life is not what we hoped. 
It's been harder than we hoped. It's been more difficult than we hoped. And, and the disappointments dampen our energy and enthusiasm and caution and uncertainty undermine our faith and, and our years and our experience and our perspective now work against the very faith we're called to embrace. Zechariah may have been in such a place. Years of walking with God. Years of disappointment. And he questioned the angel. Verse 19, Gabriel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. <laughs> and now you will be silent and unable to speak unto the day this happens. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Um, Zechariah, you're looking for certainty? I mean, Zechariah, is my presence standing next to this temple right in front of you? Is my presence not good enough? You're asking for a sign that will make you sure that you can trust my words. Really? Okay. Zachariah, you become the sign. I'm going to take away your speech. The very sign that you're asking for will become you. You will not speak until the baby is born. The story continues. We'll come back in a moment. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he couldn't speak. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them that he was unable to speak. So it's an interesting perspective here. Zechariah, his entire life, had spoken for God. That was his thing. His entire life he had been God's spokesman. It was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and five for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among my people. Zechariah had a long nine months to think about God's presence in his own life. Nine months, day after day. And then we read the rest of the story. This is not going to be on your screen. Let me just read it to you. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy. And they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he has to be called John. And they said to her, there, there's no John among your relatives by that name, no one in your family by that name. And so they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. And Zechariah asked for a writing tablet, wrote something, turned it around, and to everyone's astonishment, his name is John. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue set free. And he began to speak, praising God. And all the neighbors were filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, saying, What then is this child going to be? 
the Lord's hand is with him. Given a second opportunity, and how we thank God for the grace of second opportunities. Given a second opportunity, Zechariah responded with a solid, unwavering confidence. His name is John. And as he wrote those words on the tablet, his speech returned. And, and able to speak again, he, he sees the opportunity to, to praise God for the grand story that was unfolding. And that's continued a little bit later in the chapter. His father Zechariah was filled with the Spirit, and he prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come righteous before him all of his days. And, and then he looks to his son. He says, my child, speaking like a, a proud father with his son they had spent their whole life waiting for, you will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare a way for him, to give people the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to shine on those living in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our path to the Prince of Peace. It's a great story, isn't it? I'd like to return to where we left off last week. Um, and last week I, I asked a question. And I asked you to reflect on a decision that God has placed before you that is uncomfortable, risky, and even dangerous. Something in your life right now where you find yourself having to confront something that is pulling you outside of, 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 of your life, maybe disrupting, and what is required of you is a hard, deep obedience. An obedience that may be moving you beyond your, your, your natural instincts, what, what, what many of your friends may suggest to you, and, and God is, is disrupting and calling you to trust Him in a radical way. And, and I mentioned some things. I'm going to return to them. Just one more. And I, I, I just used some phrases that were representatives of all our lives. And these statements actually are representative of, of the Grace family because I pulled all of these from stories in real time going on with Grace family right now. Things that I know people are facing. For example, God is calling you to forgive someone who has deeply hurt you. Or maybe he's inviting you and calling you to step away from a safe, secure job to follow God's direction in a, in a way that feels risky. Or to pursue someone whose life situation is complicated, messy. And you know from just looking into this person's life that getting involved with that person is going to be costly for you. And everything in you says, I need to keep, I need to keep some boundaries. Or to risk believing in someone that others have given up on. To break free from an addiction that is paralyzing you and wreaking havoc 
in your life and your relationships. And you feel helpless. Or maybe to release the narratives that you've carried in your life for years and maybe decades. The narratives of anger and guilt and shame, condemnation that quietly, kind of underground, control our lives. And, and, and you're being invited to release that, to step into the freedom that Christ gives us. Or maybe to have a courageous conversation with someone because you need to confront behavior that is harming others. And you, you have personal knowledge of that. You know, you know that the conversation is likely not going to go well and could easily be left, could be left to someone else, but God has led you to have the conversation. Here's, here's a, a, a curious one that maybe kind of tinkers with all of our mindsets. Maybe the ask is to look at your life differently. To see your home or your place of employment or your neighborhood with all your skills, expertise, and relationships. To see, to see the world that you live in right now as your place of kingdom investment. And not as something that keeps you from kingdom investment. Not as something that competes with God using your life. The willingness to release grandiose hopes of something bigger, something better, or something different, and to see your place as the very center of God's kingdom activity. You know, God's working is not just for people who move to Australia, as wonderful as that is. Your kingdom investment is your people and your place. And He wants to reorient how we look at our very lives. And, and see our lives are not ordinary and the people around us, the opportunities at work and places of school, our neighborhoods, that is our place. Or to invest your retirement years and resources in kingdom pursuits. And that's a, just a wide sweeping range of stuff, isn't it? And my suspicion is I've touched most of our lives. And we could fill in the blank as to what it is that we're being called into right now that is, that is like that. And Advent, and what, I, what I've been trying to do for these four weeks, is we love to romanticize stories around the Advent. And there's something really beautiful about that. But Advent invites us to let go of all of our reasons and resistances saying yes to Jesus, to believe in following. That's the, that's the edge of Advent. And like Mary, like Joseph, like Zacharias, obedience to God's prompting may move us in a direction counter to all our human instincts. I said earlier, counter to the advice of our friends, maybe disruptive to all of our carefully designed plans, and, and a question emerges that every single one of us must confront, and it's very simple. Will we obey? Will we obey? 
The question is always the same, isn't it? It's always the same. Will we say yes? Or will our season of life, our fears, our doubts, our disappointments, our uncertainties, cause us to hold back and stand on the margins? You see, maybe the gift of Advent this year for you is that you say yes to God with a glad and unrestrained or an unrestrained promise. That's the yes. That becomes the gift of this Advent season. I want to close with a prayer. Last week I read from one of my prayer books that I enjoy. It's called Odd to Heaven, Rooted to Earth. And I read from one of the prayers last week, and I'm going to read another this morning as we close, and kind of wrap up this, this season of Advent, or this, this portion of it. So would you join me and just, just quietly close your eyes, and I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And this will be, this will be our closing. We are your people. They're very much like Mary, Joseph, Zacharias and Elizabeth. And we come with our eating disorders, our disappointments, trembling lips, needy hands, fallen faces, quiet in despair. Because we do not have what we need by ourselves to make a future. And so we ask that you give. Generously, abundantly, inexplicably. You give more than we can ask or think or need. Enough for all our futures. Enough for joy. Enough for well-being beyond our, our trembling needs. You give.
I'll move into our different spaces. As a reminder, we do have second hour this morning, which is a time for our youth and children to learn a spiritually developmental appropriate ways for them. So as we move into our different spaces, some of us will be going to the youth building, some upstairs into the children. And for those of you who are not serving, you are invited to remain here in the auditorium and enjoy a time of fellowship in the cafe. From Nehemiah, as I send you out into your spaces for the week, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You are dismissed. 